Well, let's uh, take our Bibles tonight and open them to the book of Galatians. Galatians, returning to our study of Galatians. We're focusing our attention tonight on Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Let's just bow for a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we are overwhelmed by your mercy and grace in our life. Your mercy and grace shown to us only helps us to realize even all the more how dependent we are on you for everything that we need. Your word tells us that you have given us, you have granted us everything we need for life and for godliness. We know that physically you sustain us, you, by your mercy, have chosen to give us physical life even at this very moment and that we breathe the air that you have created, our lungs fill up, the lungs that you created, our bodies are animated by the very creation that you have made. And so we know we are dependent upon you in that way and yet we also understand our dependence upon you in the spiritual sense that Our spiritual lungs do not inflate without the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Our spiritual minds are not guided in any way without your guidance and illumination. We cannot even begin to understand, let alone obey what you tell us, unless you move upon our lives through the power of the Spirit. And so we come to your word tonight dependent, dependent upon you for everything, for our understanding, for wisdom, grant us grace, allow us to hear what your word tells us for the good of our own lives, that we might live to the glory of you, that you would be glorified in it all. So use your word as you have promised to use it, equipping us for every good work, that we, the people of God, would be able to do the work of God. All to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin tonight, it's truly remarkable to me, really, to think about the ends to which mankind will go in order to exercise his own foolishness Several decades ago, I was introduced to a so-called, I'll put quotes around that, so-called news website. The website is a catalog of foolish activities of people around the world who do things that end most often in their life being taken from them on this physical earth. The website, some of you may even know about it, aptly named the Darwin Awards. The Darwin Awards. It's named that because Charles Darwin's teaching on the survival of the fittest, the origin of the species, that one species is smarter than others, and therefore they call out those that aren't as smart. And those who find themselves on that website or reported on that website have shown themselves to not be the fittest, at least intellectually, according to the writers of the website. 
I thought I'd just give you one example from it to begin our time tonight. Article begins this way, hands are numb but must operate my smartphone, muttered the 47-year-old Ted Zoo to his live stream audience as he skidded and stumbled up the snow-covered Shuba Ashiri Trail of Mount Fuji. Quote, I wish I had brought heat packs, unquote, he lamented, and then he was heard to say, wait, I think I'm slipping. Of course, Mount Fuji is 62 miles to the west of Tokyo. It's one of Japan's most holy mountains, as they consider it. It's 12,389 feet tall at its summit, and... There's a lot of people that visit the summit year to year as they go on mountain climbs and pilgrimages and sightseeing and these kinds of things. Usually the climb up the mountain is cold, slippery, even during the summer season. And during the summer season, they have stations along the trail that you can get things that you might need on your way up, benefits for those who are making the climb. Off-season, those stations are closed. There's no sense in which... You can get the things you might need if you forgot them, and the conditions are always hostile and inhospitable. A winter climber obviously needs proper gear, climbing experience, and as the writer says, a booster pack of common sense. Sedzu also lacked all three of those. Wearing his street clothes, suitable for just an October day in Tokyo, and carrying nothing more than a pair of climbing shoes, He fired up his smartphone and proceeded up the Subashira Trail, which, incidentally, most climbers use as a descent, not an ascent, up the mountain. He was live-streaming all the way for his people that were watching him. It was snowy. Viewers began tuning in following his jaunt up the trail, as it says, the ash-covered trail soon turned to snow, then to deep snow. His viewers are now being treated to a litany of complaints about cold, numb hands, the bitter lack of hot packs. Those watching might have started to feel a bit badly for him. But the urge continued in his own mind, perhaps maybe motivated by a reluctance and a disappointment to his viewers, that he was encouraged to trudge farther to obvious and imminent danger, continuing his social media commentary as he juggled his climbing poles and his smartphone with frostbitten fingers. Obviously, Tzedju demonstrates a classic case of misplaced priorities when he states that despite numb extremities, he must continue to operate his live stream, the author says. There is absolutely nothing his viewers could do except tune out in disbelief, perhaps maybe place wagers amongst themselves on his odds of returning intact on his live stream, quote, oh, this place is slippery, it's getting dangerous. I'm trying to walk by the rocks. Yes, rocks. It's a steep downhill. Of course not. He didn't have any crampons on his shoes. Of course, it was slick. The slope at that point was 30 degrees. Anyone still watching could see that. 
He continued his play-by-play, marching along increasingly the risky path, frequently cautioning himself against falling. Some of his viewers might have given some kind of chuckle, seeing that he had gotten himself to that place in inappropriate footwear. More than once, he asked himself whether he was on the right track. Astonishingly close to the summit for an amateur winter hiker, Sadzu at last utters an anticlimactic words, wait, I'm slipping. Experienced climbers of the mountains say, if you start slipping, you have one chance at self-arrest before it's too late. Even now, Sedzu might drop his phone and jab a climbing pole into the ground, but no, in an instant, it becomes apparent that his smartphone is more intelligent than he is. Still live streaming away, Sedzu begins an uncontrolled slide down the rocky, snowy slope. Viewers are treated to a spectacle of feet feet flailing, poles tumbling free, and a few seconds later, the footage abruptly stops. So his viewers called the authorities. The 47-year-old body of Sedzu was found the next day at an altitude of 9,800 feet, nearly 1,000 meters away from where he began his fall. No gloves, no crampons, no sense, really. Sedzu created a spectacular live stream on the ascent of this mountain, and he might have another 47 years to live had he had a little sense. Of course, we read that story, I read through those stories, and I think to myself, man, our world today is filled with stories like that. Foolish stories of people. We oftentimes just sit back and we, we shake our heads when we hear them. We go, how dumb can somebody be? As I was thinking about that, I was thinking that the more tragic reality about foolishness is that it is far too often found to be happening with professed Christians in a whole other way. Many professed Christians are foolish when it comes to spiritual doctrine. Let me, let me just begin by asking us this question tonight. On what basis are any of us accepted by God? What basis are we accepted by God? Well, of course, because we have heard teaching and because we've read books, we give an answer. Well, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. On the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And and that question and that answer, in a nutshell, is the basic truth of justification by faith alone. No one can be saved. No one person can be acceptable to God by anything they do. The only way to be justified before God is by what Jesus did when he came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross as an innocent man, and rose again from the dead. It's the only way that we can be justified. In other words, Jesus Christ alone 
is the only one who has removed the dividing wall of wrath between us, the believer, and God. And all that is left is for us to believe, to express faith that God has done what He has said He has done. That faith comes by grace. So the true biblical justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. Sadly, within evangelicalism, not all embrace that truth. Some foolishly add to it. Why? Because within the sinful heart of man is the desire for self-glory. Self-glory. Desire to, to honor self. And so what does man do? What do some with evangelicalism do when it comes to some of the doctrines of Scripture? Well, they begin to suggest, at least on this one, that while we may begin with a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that our Christian lives begin with God justifying us, we must then, after that, complete our justification through what we do, our own efforts, how we live. In other words, some want to turn the doctrine of sanctification into the doctrine of justification. Paul's words here in Galatians chapter 3 are very helpful for us in this regard because these verses help to protect us from the same kind of foolishness. Let me just read these words for us as Paul lays them out here for the Galatian brothers and sisters. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now we must remember that Paul is clarifying the truth of the gospel. He has been doing that all along. He has already defended his apostleship and his authority that has been given to him by God for preaching of the gospel. And now he is defending the truth of the gospel itself. And so we, when we read this, we cannot forget that the gospel is at stake throughout this letter. Paul is adamant. Paul is urgent. Paul is fired up, if you will, in his own soul for the people that he shared the gospel with because they are about to turn their backs on the gospel by embracing foolishness. It is the purity of the gospel that is on the mind of the Apostle Paul and he, as he writes. 
I trust we remember back in chapters 1 and 2, he was giving a defense of himself being a true apostle of the gospel. We ask ourselves, why? Why would the apostle Paul have to defend himself to those whom he has already shared the gospel with, to those whom he had been had gone to and, and shared the gospel with him. Why would he have to defend himself to them? Because his ministry with the churches in Galatia was under attack. It was being undermined by those who had come in, Judaizers who had traveled down from Jerusalem and they were teaching that faith in Jesus is a good thing. Yeah, believe in Jesus. Yeah, have faith in Jesus. But that isn't enough. They were undermining the doctrine of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That faith in Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save you. That it's good to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but it is not enough to accomplish your justification. You need to be circumcised as well. If you're going to be justified before God, then you need to add to Jesus this actual activity, this religious ritual of circumcision. This is shocking to the Apostle Paul. In fact, look at his words again just to remind us of his heart on this back in chapter 1 and verse 6. I am amazed, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You see, they are on the precipice of a very dangerous mountain. They are thinking foolishly. They are embracing an edited gospel, one that isn't another gospel at all, only there are some who are disturbing you, he says in chapter 1, verse 7, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is indignant about this, and rightly so. Rightly so. Each one of us, I think, can resonate with that in some sense as we think about people whom in the past maybe we've shared the gospel with and maybe they have shown a sense in which they embraced the truth of the gospel and there was change going on and then somehow something took place in their life whereby someone infiltrated them with a false truth and they began to follow it and and were now walking away from the truth that they had known. And we go to them and we say, what are you doing? We don't just go with a, with a sense of, hey, let me talk to you a minute, brother. We go with a sense of what is happening to you. We go with the heart like the Apostle Paul, because if the gospel is changed, then it cannot save. And so to add to the gospel of faith in Jesus alone is to add works to it. It's utter foolishness almost like what takes place in many Pentecostal and many charismatic churches today. As Ed Fitzgerald was sharing this morning, one of the greatest threats in Latin America is the Pentecostal church. This idea that you need a second blessing, this idea that once you believe in Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you don't have the full Holy Spirit. You need a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, and your, your experiences are what drive all of that. You need a new experience about it. 
The Holy Spirit coming into your life really isn't enough. You need continual filling of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're going to live by your faith. Maybe the doctrines of the Catholic Church that teach that you need to to follow your faith in Jesus, believe in Jesus, but also you have to follow the seven sacraments of the church as a means by which God bestows grace upon you, that His grace in Jesus Christ isn't enough to to save you. It's enough to, to get you in the door, but it's not enough to save you because you need continual influxes of the grace of God through the sacraments of the church. And then even after you die, you need more infusions of grace just to get you out of the place of purgatory, which is nowhere found in Scripture. Faith in Jesus Christ isn't enough. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ is undermined by all of that foolishness. But they say you need other works. Paul is saying, listen, we can't change that gospel. That's a different gospel. If you change the gospel, then Jesus isn't sufficient. And if Jesus isn't sufficient, then the Holy Spirit isn't sufficient either. And if Jesus isn't sufficient and the Holy Spirit isn't sufficient, then God the Father isn't sufficient either. In other words, if you change the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if it is changed, then the entire Godhead is changed. This is why the Apostle Paul is so exercised. This is why Paul has therefore defended not just his apostleship, but in defending his apostleship, he has been defending the gospel. Now we come to chapter 3 and 4, where he's going to explain the theology of his gospel. He says, listen, there's only one true gospel is Jesus Christ alone, and I am called as an apostle to that gospel. So if anyone ever comes and tells you anything that's different than what I've told you, even if it's myself or an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. He's defending the gospel, and now he's going to begin to explain the theology of his gospel. Notice how he begins in chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? We can stop right there for a moment. Now place yourself for a moment in the church where this letter is being read for the first time. A letter is coming. A letter is being read to the church. Hey, we got to go to the church today because because the Apostle Paul has written to us a letter that he wants to have written or read to us. We must go. We must be there. Here we are. We are sitting. We are waiting. We, We hear from the reading of this letter, the first two chapters of Galatians, and we go, well, there's there's some sense in which Paul is exercised in this letter. And we can resonate with that, and we're beginning to think about our own selves. And now Paul says to you, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Wow. Paul, aren't you being harsh? Aren't you being rather harsh, Paul? 
Is he? Is he being harsh? We can only say no. No, he is not. But he is speaking this way because the Galatian believers are standing on the precipice of potential spiritual defection. They, just like that foolish clamor that I read about, they have foolishly ascended the mountain unprepared. And they are about to slip into spiritual oblivion if they don't listen. They are in danger of actually nullifying the grace of God. Think about that. They are actually in danger of nullifying the grace of God. You say, really? Really? The grace of God? Yes. Yes. Why would Jesus Christ have to die if I, as a human being, could take care of my own justification? We are saved by grace through faith. If I can justify myself, then why would Jesus Christ have to die? The, the, the logical implication is that Christ died for no purpose if I can justify myself. You say, how do you prove that, Pastor? Verse 21 of chapter 2. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul says, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. See, Paul says, I'm not going to nullify grace. I'm not going to add to Jesus Christ because you cannot add to Jesus Christ because if you add to Jesus Christ, you no longer have a saving Jesus Christ. In fact, you no longer have grace at all. You nullify it. So it's with that, those last words of chapter 2 ringing in the mind of the Apostle Paul that these words of chapter 3, verse 1, come out of his mouth and to our ears. In other words, the Galatians and many a professing Christian today are guilty of spiritual stupidity. Spiritual stupidity. And sadly... Sadly, it's not stupidity just on the doctrine of justification. It's other doctrines as well. doesn't matter. You can pick any of them. You can pick any doctrine of the evangelical church, and you will find foolishness being accepted. In fact, we see it going on today. The newest thing, we've talked about it even as this church, is foolishness that is being embraced as a means for understanding the Bible. There's foolishness in how your hermeneutic, how your interpretation of the Scriptures goes. You must now, as some will say, you must now introduce critical race theory and intersectionality. You cannot understand the Bible unless you look through the lens of critical race theory in order to interpret the Scriptures through the social justice norms that society is now defining for itself. And until you look through those things, you cannot really understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Or the doctrine of biblical sufficiency. 
that the Bible has everything we need for life and godliness. Some have undermined that over the years and begin to say you you need more than the scriptures for your life and for your godliness. In fact, you need the wisdom of man. You need to run to the psychologist. You need to run to those who have a professional idea about the behaviors of man because the Bible is not enough for that. The Bible can't really treat the deep issues of the heart. People have forgotten that the Bible says that out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life. People have forgotten that it is God who has created man, that God knows more about man than man knows about himself, and we must now diagnose ourselves by God's definition of us, not ours. So biblical sufficiency is on the blocks. Eschatology, the Doctrine of last things has been placed in a secondary column. That it is a secondary notion, if you will, to think about the things of eschatology, that those things are hard to understand. And so because they are hard to understand, we have relegated them to the place of secondary notion. Yet the Apostle Paul, in many, many places throughout the Scriptures, clearly says that we are to focus on the coming of Christ as the means for our own obedience. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this very thing. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for this very same purpose. Why? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time has already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and a, a bomb and uh, ab- abominable idolatries, and all of this, they are surprised that you don't run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So the end of all things is at hand. That's eschatology. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in other words, in light of the reality of the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment to come to stand before God, in light of that, you be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Because of the return of Christ, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, and each one who has received the gift employed in the serving of one another. Why do we do all that? Because Christ is returning, because of eschatology. Eschatology is not a secondary doctrine. It certainly isn't a secondary doctrine to God. It's not subjugated under some other doctrine because it's more difficult for us to understand the mystery of the coming of Jesus Christ. Eschatology is to be at the forefront of our minds. We are to set our mind and our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's going to come back one day, and we don't want to be sinning when he returns. 
When we return to Galatians chapter 3, it's interesting. I use a whole host of different translations of the Bible when I study. I read many different versions, translated versions. It's interesting. One of the versions quoted this verse this way, translated it this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. That's how it translated it. I love that. What is Paul saying? He's saying, as professing believers, how can you be so foolish? In fact, he uses a word here that he's never used before, and he never uses again in all of his letters. He asks, who bewitched you? Who bewitched you? That's the word baskino in the original language. It means to fascinate. Who has fascinated you? It's almost like who has cast a spell on you? Who has done some, some sleight of hand before you that you didn't notice what was going on over here as you watched what was happening over here? Who has played the trick in front of your eyes? Who bewitched you? It's almost like you've come under a spell. He says, listen, it's almost like you, you, you have this fog over your eyes. You're acting so foolishly that it's like that. He says, you're allowing yourself to be under the influence of false teachers who are propagating a Jesus plus gospel. How foolish. How foolish. The question we have to ask ourselves is what breaks that spell? What breaks that fascination? How do we not get caught in that kind of trap? Well, Paul gives an answer here, and really he, he sums it up in a, in a sense in the first verse with this first caution. Who bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You want to know how to break the spell? The cross of Christ. What happens by faith in Jesus? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul says, listen, Galatians, listen, believer. Being justified begins the Spirit-filled life at the cross. Justification begins at the cross. The Spirit-filled life begins at the cross. Each and every one of us who believe have seen Jesus Christ crucified. In other words, Paul says he was publicly portrayed crucified to us. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. I'm not a mind reader but I know what you're probably thinking. You say, how did I see Christ portrayed crucified? We are 2,000 plus years this side of the cross. How did we see Christ publicly portrayed crucified? I certainly wasn't there when he was crucified. The Galatians certainly could stand up and protest at the moment this is read. We weren't there when Jesus was crucified. So how can you be saying that, Paul? How is that statement that Paul makes here that's in the Word of God, in the canon of Scripture, we know it's true because God has said it. How can we 
understand what is being said. When was Christ portrayed, crucified to us as a believer? Well, the only answer is this. Whoever shared the gospel with you portrayed Jesus Christ crucified. That person was an example of the saving truth of Christ crucified. Their life, the change that took place, who they are now in Christ, they're sharing the gospel with you. That is a picture of what took place, Christ crucified. This is what we preach, is it not? Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ and Him crucified. This is what we preach. So when Paul came to Galatia and preached the gospel, he preached Jesus Christ crucified. And all that, it, that goes with that, all that's entailed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the, the wrath of God being satisfied, the propitiation for sin being made, the satisfaction of God's wrath in Jesus Christ, the, the reality of our justification taking place, the reality of our, the beginning reality of sanctification when God saves a person in Jesus Christ. All of that is portrayed. Christ was portrayed to them. Christ was portrayed to us. This is one of the reasons why we have a cross in our church. Because it reminds us of Christ crucified, does it not? And so we preach Christ crucified. We preach all that that implies and all that goes with that from the Scriptures. We preach all the mighty acts of God and When they are preached, our minds are painting the picture. Our minds are taking those and developing the picture in our minds of who Jesus Christ is. So when someone preached the gospel to us, and when Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians, their minds were painting the picture of the crucifixion in their own eyes. Their sin being nailed to the cross. The debt that God had hanging over us, being nailed to the cross. Jesus, the innocent God-man, being nailed to the cross because of our sin. Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, that's all I know. I don't know anything else. I don't know a Jesus plus gospel. All I know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So our justification centers on the cross and the implications of that death for our salvation and all the implications within that. But but even with that, there there's more than that, isn't there? I don't mean more by way of addition to Jesus Christ, but more by way of implications that is there, because while we preach Christ crucified, and surely we preach that, we also preach Christ risen from the dead, don't we? That's why we don't have Jesus on the cross. At this very moment, He is not on the cross. He is risen. He is the living Savior who grants forgiveness to all who believe. Sometimes I have thought of even about our cross here in this church. It's way too pretty. Too pretty of a cross. It needs to have the splinters 
marks the harshness of the cross. The Apostle Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you've forgotten that fact. You've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten Jesus Christ being public, publicly portrayed as crucified. You believed it. You've allowed yourself to be fascinated by other teaching. They had heard the true gospel from Paul. They believed the true gospel that Paul shared, but now someone else has come along. Someone else has introduced a lie. It's interesting, the words here publicly portrayed in verse 1. It's a word that describes a sign, a sign for the public to see. It's like driving down the highway and there's a billboard there. The first century, they didn't, they didn't have their own Bible. They, didn't, they, <laughs> they weren't carrying around books. There, there wasn't a library they could go to and check out a book that told them these things. Anytime somebody had to say something in public, they would put up a sign. We've, we've even heard that in reference to the Reformation as Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. They would put up a sign like a billboard. So Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ was, was portrayed to you on a public billboard. That picture was, was right in front of you. You could not miss it. And on that public portrait of Jesus that you have seen, the false teachers have come along with their, their spray paint cans and they have tagged the picture and changed it. It's no longer what it was. And you, Galatians, you have accepted it as if it's real, as if it's truth, as if it's valid. Why? Because you're unwilling to accept justification in Christ alone. Because of that, because your heart's desire for self-glory, you've been convinced that you have a part in it, that, that your sinful heart wants that part, and so you convinced yourself that what they're saying must be true. It sounds logical, and so you've been bewitched. It's a self-bewitching, really. Self-imposed bewitching. Paul says, don't be fascinated by them. Don't be fascinated by them. The cross is what you need to look to. His cross is enough. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient, Paul says. He is sufficient for our sin. Therefore, our faith in Him is sufficient for us to be justified before God. And since Jesus is the only and sufficient Savior, it is utter stupidity to add anything to what He has accomplished on the cross. We are justified before God completely. And notice, Paul says, not only are we justified, but we are spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. Verse 2 all the way to verse 5, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? word foolish, by the way, is like the word ignorant or self-imposed ignorance. 
It's a self-imposed stupidity. Are you so stupid? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Listen, beloved, every true Christian knows that they are justified by faith alone. Every Christian knows that. Not only by what the Scriptures say, but they know it by their own experience. Many people want to judge life by their experience, and yet we must take our experience and filter it through the Scriptures, and we know we are justified by faith alone, even as we look at our own experience and we take it to Scripture to define it. The Galatians knew this. They knew this. So to help them off the cliff of foolishness, And onto the path of theological safety, Paul appeals to their experience as believers. And he asks them several questions. How did you get the Spirit, verse 2? Tell me, how did the Spirit come to you? Secondly, how how do you live your Christian life, verses 3 and 4? How do you carry on in sanctification? And third, how does God accomplish all of this in you? How does God do it? Essentially, all of these questions boil down to a single theological reality. The reality is this. Does the Christian receive the Holy Spirit by faith or by works? All of these are the outworking of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in all of them. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? There's the Spirit. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? There's the Spirit empowerment in our lives. Did you suffer these many things if indeed it was in vain? Was it vain? And does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? There's the Spirit again. Does a Christian receive the Holy Spirit and thereby live by their own flesh, or do they live by the Holy Spirit? Is it by faith or by works? Of course, we know the answer because the questions are all rhetorical questions. In other words, the Galatians and every true believer cannot possibly deny that they received the Holy Spirit when they believed in Jesus Christ. No true believer would ever deny that. Those who foolishly say you need to have more of the Spirit, I dare say, are believers at all. Because no true believer would deny receiving the Holy Spirit. And notice that when Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, he's not separating him from Jesus Christ who was crucified, or God the Father who is the one who provides the Spirit. Jesus Christ is crucified. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills and seals us, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who sends the Spirit to us as believers. So the whole Godhead is involved here. Paul is invoking to the Galatians the theology of the gospel in which all of the Godhead is involved. That is simply to say that to change the doctrine of justification by faith alone at any one point is to change the Godhead. The Galatians knew about the work of the Holy Spirit. 
They'd been under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They'd been under the direction of the Holy Spirit. They had received gifts of the Spirit that they might use. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is being reflected in their lives. Paul mentions this over in chapter 5. Remember the verse that all of us like to learn? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. Paul says, you know the truth of this. So there is irrefutable evidence of the Holy Spirit's work and presence in your life. And so Paul wants to know the cause. What's the cause of the Spirit being in your life? Well, there's only two options. You either got the Spirit by effort, or you got the Spirit by faith. Those are the only two options. So Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you unwise, unthinking people, you foolish Galatians, you're not thinking. Just think about it for a moment and you get it right. You look at your own life experience, you'd see what the truth is about the gospel and you go, yeah, that's the only way I could have gotten it. word foolishness, by the way, is the same word that Christ used to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. He says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to what? To believe. Oh, foolish men and slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. But where does the foolishness come from? comes from self-imposed unbelief. Self-imposed unbelief. You're foolish because you just don't believe. You know you have the Spirit. You know that He came to you because of faith in Christ, and now you're being bewitched because of your own unbelief. And so Paul says, this is the only thing I want to know, verse 2. It's the only thing I want to know. Did you receive the Spirit by the works or by faith? You answer that one question, you get the answer to that very pointed question, the argument's over. This is all I want to know, it's one thing. Tell me this one thing. How did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or by hearing of faith? The fact that the Spirit comes by faith alone has massive implications for the Christian life. The way of salvation begins in us by faith. The same way we live it is by faith, verses 3 and 4. We get it by faith. We live it by faith. And the way it ends is by faith. Verse 5, He who provides with you the Spirit and works miracles among you, did he? does he do that by the law? Does not the Bible say that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ? Does not the Bible tell us that in Philippians chapter 1? Sure it does. God's the one who granted you faith. God's the one who gave you the Spirit. 
Therefore, he's the one who will complete it in you. So from start to finish and everywhere in between, we live by faith. We don't live by faith plus. New life in Christ begins with faith. It continues by faith and it is completed through faith. In fact, there's only one way that we need to die or that we ought to die. We die in faith. We don't want to die in sin. We die in faith. No such thing as performance-based Christianity. That's what the Judaizers wanted. They were saying what they wanted was amounting to self-justification. You can justify yourself and then... If you can justify yourself, then you can have a self-sanctification. You sanctify yourself. And if you can justify yourself and sanctify yourself, then surely you can glorify yourself. Paul's saying, no, we live the Christian life only by the Spirit. Began as we received the Holy Spirit by faith, and we live in reliance upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as we walk all the way every day. Paul says, to believe in anything else, in the words of the Apostle Paul, even here in chapter 5 again, to believe in anything else, go over there for just a moment, to believe in anything else, know what he says, if you believe in anything else, notice verse 3, well, I'll just read from verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore Keep standing firm and do not subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from Grace. Praise God, that's not us. Praise God, that's not the true believer. Right? That's not us here, is it? Notice verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Paul says, listen, Galatians, listen, you who have placed your faith in Christ. We are waiting by faith in what God has said. We walk by faith. We live by the Spirit. So Paul says to the Galatians, listen, you're, you're, you're being foolish. You're being foolish. You need to check your mind at the door when it comes to the things that you're hearing. You need to take those thoughts captive to the Word of God. You need to, to really scrutinize it and listen to it taking it back to the Word of God to see if it be true. If you don't do that, you're easily bewitched. So the exhortation for us is the same. Let us live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit that we have received by faith in Jesus Christ, living with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ fixed on Jesus Christ. Let us not think that we can add anything to the salvation that Jesus Christ has brought through his death, burial, and resurrection.
and we'll get more next time. Let's let's pray. Father, we have said enough. Not because there's more that could not be said, but you have filled us with enough to chew on tonight that challenges us, causes us to think about our own lives and how we think about that which is in our own world. Learning from our brothers and sisters in Galatia from 2,000 plus years before us, and how easy it is to be tripped up and bewitched, to be unprepared, to foolishly ascend the mountain unprepared and find ourselves slipping. Lord, guard us, hedge us in, help us to be discerning, always looking to the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that you are enough, that we are secure in you. There's nothing we can do to remove us. There's nothing we can do to keep us. You keep us, and we can never be snatched from your hand. Thank you for our justification in Christ alone. Use us by the power of your Spirit as we submit to you to be living gospel testimonies for the glory of your name in the proclamation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.